Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts. We're continuing on. We're in chapter 26. We'll be starting at uh, verse 19. As we like to do, we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for uh, allowing us to come together. We know that the the, the problems of the world sometimes um, block out what you try to tell us to do and and to show the love of Christ to one and all uh, those that are suffering. And we we think of the, the people of Gaza now that have, have, have suffered so severely. And we pray for an, an opening of eyes uh, in America, and, uh, particularly by Christians who seem to turn their backs on what you say about being blessed are the peacekeepers. We we don't understand this, and we ask and beseech of you to soften people's hearts to see the terrible things that are happening around the world and to be softened by those and feel compassion for those people. And thank you for this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back with everyone. We have been looking the last several weeks at the uh, trials of Paul that are recorded in Acts 23 through 26, although when he gets to Rome, it's, it's almost a continuation in the final chapter, uh, chapter 28. But we're finding some interesting things in Paul's defense that are very difficult to reconcile with the teachings of uh, most churches and religious teachers and institutions, at least in in America today. Uh, Of course, uh, dispensationalism uh, cannot stand against uh, Paul's teaching, but we're also finding that the other end times views uh, are not matching up with what Paul is saying either. And we're hoping that we find in this a reason that uh, the the uh, non-dispensational churches have been weak in refuting and debunking any biblical basis uh, for Christian Zionism or dispensationalism. And so this does get a little involved here, but I think it's incredibly important to, to uh, see where we need to go in America to to prevent the kind of travesties that are uh, ongoing uh, as we speak right now in Gaza, uh, we've got to uh, wake up uh, more Christ followers in, in this country. So this is what we're doing. Now, Paul has repeated his uh, life story, basically, to Herod Agrippa. This is the final Herod, actually. The line kind of dies out after him they are kind of judean by religion they're they're remnants of the old uh, edomites who were combined into judah at sword point by the maccabees and, and the the herods in the gospels in the book of acts kind of represent a a corrupted king of the Jews, as we would hear it, uh, king of the Judeans, as we would more accurately state it. They are yet another physical trapping of 
the physical kingdom of Israel, which is basically dead spiritually, uh, separated from God by uh, generation after generation of rebellion, butchering the prophets that God sent to warn them, and of course with the life of Jesus himself, uh, they did not accept him, at least in the way he offered himself and a kingdom that he offered to them, they would not accept that. And they uh, put him to death uh, unlawfully to cap their crimes. And, and so they are very much a spiritually dead nation. And Paul is recapping uh, things for this corrupt physical king of the Judean nation, Agrippa. And let's uh, read verses 19 through 23, please. King Agrippa, I could not disobey that heavenly vision. I preached a message of reform and of conversion to God, first to the people of Damascus, then to the people of Jerusalem and all the country of Judea. Yes, even to the Gentiles. I urged them to act in conformity with their change of heart. That is why the Judeans seized me in the temple court and tried to murder me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here to testify to great and small alike. Nothing that I say differs from what the prophets and Moses foretold, namely that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Great. Thank you very much, Leslie. So Paul had just recapped how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That's the vision that he refers to here in verse 19. And then if we recall back to Acts 9, when we looked at that, after Saul went through three days of mourning, he got up, was baptized, and then immediately began refuting the obstinate Judeans in the synagogue communities of Damascus. And so this is what he is uh, recapping here in verse 30. Certainly he went to the Judeans uh, first. It was a number of years before he began going to the other nations but then, of course, he did uh, from their base in Antioch of Syria, as we learned in Acts 12 and 13. Uh, Saul and Barnabas went to Cyprus and then up into uh, present-day Turkey, and they began presenting the good news of God's kingdom to in the synagogues, primarily to the Judeans who were there, who for the most part rejected it. But each synagogue had a large community of God-fearing foreigners, and that became the core of these uh, assemblies, ecclesias, uh, as we call them, churches in these areas, and uh, this is what he's reviewing here. After a number of years, he ended up in the province of Asia, uh, which Ephesus being the chief city there, the seven churches of Asia are mentioned in the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But he made a lot of enemies during the uh, three years that he was there in Ephesus. And he alludes to this in verse 21, the, the jealousy that the message that all nations were welcome as citizens in, of the highest standing in the newly reborn kingdom of God caused the Judeans to develop a jealous rage. They knew that the foreigners would be allowed in when the Messiah came, but they never understood that they would be allowed in without being circumcised, without following the law of Moses, or that they would be treated as equals with uh, ethnic Israelites. So they were extremely jealous, and they tried to grab uh, Paul, in Jerusalem when he, was, he went up there for uh, Pentecost, I believe it was, and they tried to... Now, in verse 22, he claims that he has been 
working with the help of God, saying nothing except what Moses and the prophets said would happen. He sums it up in verse 23 that the Messiah must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would announce light both to our people and to the other nations. Now, this is a real problem for uh, Darby and Schofield and, and all dispensationalists because they are adamant that the the church is not mentioned uh, anywhere in the Old Testament in any of the Hebrew scriptures. And yet, Paul has been out preaching the gospel and establishing what we would call churches saying nothing except what Moses and the prophets said would happen. So this directly uh, contradicts and refutes one of the fundamental tenets of dispensationalism and Christian Zionism, uh, you know, right here. All right, any, uh, any other thoughts or comments? Would you go over that just a bit more, Mark, your last uh, explanation? Well, the, one of the uh, main arguing points of a dispensationalist to anyone else is, is the fact that we, um, we tend to think in a church-centric manner that uh, being a Christ follower is being a Christian, a member of a church, and that the church was God's eternal purpose. So we think in church-centered ideas. And the dispensationalists can look through the entire Old Testament, four-fifths of the Bible, and there is no proper noun church anywhere in the Old Testament. And so they boldly claim that the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. And they are uh, correct about that. Uh, the word church as a, as a proper noun does not appear uh, anywhere in the Old Testament, but it shouldn't really appear in the New Testament. The church is a bad, bad translation of the Greek word ekklesia, and that means assembly. It's basically a synonym for the word synagogue. Uh, and the idea of both ecclesia or synagogue is a gathering of God's people. So the dispensationalist claims that the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament and that the church was thrown together as, at the last minute when God's plan to set up his physical kingdom failed in the first century. But what we've seen as we go through the book of Acts, nowhere are any of the apostles apologizing or explaining that, uh, well, this isn't the first plan, this is kind of the plan B that we threw together uh, at all. And Paul is saying that he has been going around preaching to all nations nothing except what Moses and the prophets said would happen. Uh, Messiah would suffer, he would rise from the dead, and that he would announce light both to our people and to the nations. And and the dispensationalists believe that this won't, is still unfulfilled and is still an undetermined amount of time in the future. Why was Paul, you know, wandering around uh, telling people this in the first century? It just doesn't fit with the basics of dispensational thought. I don't know if I explained that uh, well or not. Thank you. Okay. All right. We can go ahead then and read verses 24 through 29. As Paul went on defending himself in this way, Festus interrupted with a shout, Paul, you are mad, and your great learning is driving me mad. No, your excellency, answered Paul, I am not mad. The message I proclaim is the sober truth. The king here is well acquainted with these matters. 
Before him, I can speak freely. I am convinced that none of these escapes him. After all, it did not take place in a dark corner. Do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I am sure you do. At this, Agrippa said, A little more, Paul, and you will make a Christian out of me. Paul replied, Whether little more or much more, I would to God that not only you, but all who listen to me today might become what I am without these chains. Great, thank you. Now, many people uh, today might listen to these uh, recordings and think that we're going into a, a lot of detail that doesn't make any difference at all. Uh, this is apparently what the Roman governor Festus thought. He kind of interrupts Paul, apparently, and tells him that you've gone crazy from too much study. <laughs> Paul denies that. And he appeals to Agrippa as a native, whereas Festus, of course, is a Roman. I lately come to those parts. But uh, he appeals to Agrippa and asks him if he believes the prophets. And again, this is all based on the fact that the words of the prophets were coming true right then, not thousands of years still to be in the future. But the words of the prophets are what Paul spoke, and these are what he appealed to with King Agrippa, the words of the prophets, the Hebrew prophets. Now, our English translations, many of them in verse 28, have made it sound as if Agrippa is somewhat sympathetic and, and almost decides to become a Christian. In, in studying this a little deeper, that's probably not the case. The, uh, you're trying to make me play the Christian in just in a short time is kind of the literal uh, meaning here. Of verse 28. Um, most scholars don't think Agrippa had any serious interest uh, in, in, what, uh, in what Paul is saying. But, you know, he's not unfriendly. If, he, if, if the Judean leaders are angry with Paul, well, then Agrippa probably likes that, and Festus probably likes that, because these were difficult people to uh, get along with. So, I mean, he's not necessarily hostile, but I don't think he's really that interested. Uh, Paul does uh, ask again that, uh, that uh, Agrippa would be just like Paul, that he would seriously consider, you know, the words. And, and Paul's actual speech was probably longer than, uh, than what Luke records here. All right, any thoughts or comments? Let's just go ahead and finish uh, the, the last verses of the chapter down to the end, please. Then the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and the rest of the company. After they had left the chamber, they talked matters over among themselves and admitted, This man is doing nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa further remarked to Festus, he could have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to the emperor. Great, thank you. Well, so Bernice is apparently Agrippa's sister who left her husband and then came back to live with her brother. They uh, conferred together, and they thought Paul was probably a little crazy, a little too fanatical, uh, but it wasn't a capital crime in Judea or Rome to uh, be too scholarly or too zealous uh, in, in your uh, beliefs. Uh, so he certainly had done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. But we, we recall that he had to appeal to Caesar to keep from being sent back to Jerusalem and being murdered uh, on the way by the Pharisees. This unanimous concurrence of Paul's innocence follows 
what Luke has been pointing out throughout the book of Acts, that the agents and officials of Rome are are not really an enemy of the early disciples. They they are not going to stoop to the depravity of the Judean leadership in unjustly condemning uh, an innocent person here. And uh, we we do see this uh, throughout the book of Acts. Now Nero is probably already the emperor at this time, but the first five years of Nero's reign were considered almost a golden age uh, of the Roman Empire. He was a gifted leader, and uh, a lot of good things happened, although the final three and a half years or so of his reign were so bad that hardly anyone remembers how good the first five years were. Once the appeal to the Supreme Court of Caesar in Rome had been made, it, uh, the protocol demanded that it be continued, and Paul really wanted to get to Rome anyway. So um, that's how we will end 26. We're, we're not quite ready to go into 27, because we've still got to uh, make a few more points that relate to uh, Paul's idea of resurrection in particular, and again, this this will relate uh, very much to our current struggle against the grave heresy of dispensationalism. Uh, any other thoughts or comments um, on the text here before we uh, back up and look at at some of Paul's points made during these trials? Mark, there was there was no way that Paul or Ephesus could have released Paul at this point. You said the protocols required him to be able to go to Caesar. What was Agrippa's power at this point? Agrippa had absolutely no jurisdiction over Jerusalem or Caesarea. He had uh, part of Galilee and part of the Decapolis, the Greek cities on the other side of the Jordan River, which would be modern-day Jordan. He was down visiting uh, Festus as the newly appointed governor as a courtesy visit, and he was asked to listen to Paul just as a request so that uh, Festus could help formulate his letter that he had to send along with Paul to Rome. So Agrippa and Bernice there are only serving in an advisory capacity uh, to help Festus. Thank you. All right. Do, do you think if Paul were, was allowed to lay on sick about the gospel that Agrippa might have become a Christian, or was he being facetious? What do you think? Well, I think that Paul did lay on the gospel, uh, but we might not recognize it, because it's not the Billy Graham Southern Baptist type of gospel that Paul is laying on. Uh, and this is exactly what we want to go back and examine. He's Remember, he's... He is proclaiming nothing but what was foretold by the prophets. And uh, this is a little bit different than the modern American view of the gospel. And we've talked about this in some of our previous uh, sessions, how that we tend to think of the gospel as a, as a personal relationship, as a one-on-one -on -one thing between us and God. But the Bible doesn't really present it that way. I said earlier that we have a church-centric view of things and of the New Testament, but uh, the, the proper noun is not church. The proper noun is Israel. And uh, this is uh, very important uh, to, to make that difference. Israel is the one who needed the new birth. You know, and, you know, Billy Graham, I think, popularized, at least when I was a kid, he seemed to be directly connected to the idea of being a born-again Christian. And then later, President Jimmy Carter, he epitomized being a born-again Christian. And this idea of being born again was all about us as an individual. But yet, in the, in the gospel, being born again, as Jesus presented it to uh, Nicodemus 
in John chapter 3, you must be born again. That That's you all in Texas. Y'all. Y'all must be born again. He was telling Nicodemus as a leader of Israel that Israel had to be reborn. And this is Paul's gospel. It's not about Mark Horton being born again in the year whatever, uh, 19-something, but uh, it was about Israel being reborn as a perfect spiritual kingdom. And that would occur in the days of Christ and the apostles. This is the gospel of Paul. And this is what we can discern if we look at the defense that he makes in his trial. And so those who are in today in the reformed, restored, reborn kingdom of God, the throne of David that our dispensational friends are so excited about, this throne, the throne of David, of course, is linked to the kingdom of Israel. Okay, the throne of David is part of the kingdom of Israel. Israel means they rule with God. And uh, the spiritual kingdom is God's kingdom. Those who are in it, people of every background of all nations, uh, rule with God today. Uh, and this was Paul's gospel. This is not the common gospel taught in America today. It It is more close to what we would call the Eastern uh, Gospel, but the Orthodox Church added a lot of things, too, uh, from the time of Constantine on. Uh, they just they went in a slightly different direction from the Roman Catholic Church, but, but they, they do retain certain uh, principles that seem to be a little more accurate than the tradition that came down through the Catholic Church and through the Protestant Reformation into Europe and into America. So it's it's all about the body of Christ, the body of believers who are the kingdom of God, who are the living temple of God, who are the bride of Christ collectively. In that body, we have eternal life. We can do all things out of that body, we are nothing. So, this gospel of Paul's, I believe, is very much a collective gospel. And uh, the individualism that is tied into uh, dispensationalism contributes to the confusion, the misunderstanding, and the inability of, of, uh, of non-dispensationalists to refute dispensationalism. Okay, so Paul, throughout these trials, has been preaching the hope of Israel. He says, I am on trial for the hope of Israel. Other times he says, I am on hope for resurrection. He uses the two terms synonymously, as we have pointed out. We recall in Jerusalem when he was first arrested that the Pharisees, and at first thought Paul was teaching the same thing that they were about resurrection, but within a week to a week and a half... They realized that his idea of resurrection and kingdom were totally different than theirs. So different that they wanted to murder him. They were now accusing him of subverting the hope of Israel, of perverting and preaching against the hope of Israel. So uh, we've talked about that, that there were two different... uh, uh, concepts. The Pharisees had a very physical concept of the kingdom and of resurrection, and Paul is teaching what Jesus taught, which was a spiritual resurrection and a spiritual kingdom. And so they were on two different wavelengths. They agreed uh, that the resurrection belonged to Israel. They They agreed that the resurrection belonged to Israel's last days, but they disagreed over the nature of the resurrection, enough so that the Pharisees would be willing to, uh, you know, to murder uh, Paul uh, using any means necessary 
to uh, to get rid of him. My mentor Don Preston, whose notes I'm, I've been using as we do this examination, he asks people who want to discuss uh, end times. Uh, he asks them three questions, and I don't know if I've uh, mentioned any of these here before, but he asks them, number one, are your last day's hopes, or he uses the term eschatological, which is just a big word meaning last days, are your last day's hopes, which would include judgment, resurrection, the second coming of Christ, are these based on promises made to Old Testament Israel? And uh, generally, of course, when he asks this question to anybody, they would say, no, a dispensationalist might say yes, but anybody else would say no. Uh, Number two, he asks them, what was the hope of Israel? And I don't know, if I asked you what was the hope of Israel, if you hadn't listened to any of these sessions, uh, what would you think the hope of Israel was? Or what do you think the typical Christian in America would answer if you asked him what was the hope of Israel? The coming of the Messiah? Messiah, that's a good answer. I mean, that's because we do our Christmas pageants and everything. And uh, sometimes the Messiah is tied in uh, to the hope of Israel. If you ask today, they would say, uh, it is what Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu is telling us they're looking to accomplish. (laughs) Yeah, that's what a dispensationalist would answer, yes. That's what the average American would say. Well, sadly. What is the hope of Israel today? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't add the the today onto it, but what was the hope of Israel, this one that Paul keeps referring to. Okay. You know, so you can see. Okay. Yeah. Um, In the biblical context of the lesson today, you're asking that question. Well, yeah, but in other words. Sorry. I misunderstood. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, but you do get these answers that are all over the map. And the point is, is that Paul made his stand. He placed his life on the idea. He he said he was on trial for the hope of Israel. Uh, And that if you substitute the Messiah, it doesn't necessarily make sense. I am on hope for the Messiah. I mean, it could make sense, but if he only had Jesus in mind, you see, it, it, he would use he would have used different pronouns. I, I think you know, in in some of these uh, defenses that we've just looked at here in these trials, because as we as we have seen here, what Paul is thinking of is resurrection. And there's the, the the ultimate reason that you needed a Messiah was to achieve resurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, oh, well, great, we have a Messiah. What does that mean? You know, our taxes are going to go up or, you know, I mean, what did that mean to the typical Israelite? Well, if they really studied the law of Moses, they knew that they were separated from God because they could not keep the law. And they needed the Messiah because they sin made them dead to God. And the Messiah could make them alive to God. And and this is this idea of resurrection that uh, that Paul has been speaking of uh, in this trial. Now, it's not the idea of resurrection that the Pharisees had because they were thinking of physical bodies coming up out of the ground. But this is not the idea. And we're going to keep looking at that. We're going to go back to these passages that Paul is thinking of, and then we're going to read some excerpts from his letters where he's referring back to these Old Testament prophecies uh, on the subject of resurrection. And Anyway, there's one more question that Don asks, and it is... At what point in time and with what event were all God's promises to Old Covenant Israel fulfilled and his covenant relationship with them ended? Okay. And, and again, these questions wouldn't... These are primarily directed to non-dispensationalists. But, it, but these questions point out the complete lack of understanding that non-dispensational Christians in America have of these important concepts 
And if they try to debate or discuss these things with a dispensationalist, the typical churchgoer in America would be blown out of his pew. I mean, he, he could not he could not deal with the, the dispensational paradigm because he would not understand these concepts that that uh, Paul makes the most of in his trials that uh, Don Preston sums up in these three questions. So we, we hope by examining these questions and the answers to them that we will be uh, much better prepared to teach our, our fellow non-dispensational believers and for us all to better refute this terrible travesty and heresy which is uh, dispensationalism. And also to face Jesus. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, fortunately... With understanding. Yes, I mean, it, it certainly can't hurt. I, our salvation, I don't think, is dependent on our on perfect understanding, uh, but, but we are supposed to be uh, soldiers in the kingdom, and this is the war that needs to be fought. I mean, this yes. is, you know, it's just terrible. So we... Yes. We, we need to be armored, we need to be weaponed, we need to be ready to do battle. And, and I guess that's another way to say it. Most churchgoers are not prepared at all. They don't have the mindset, they don't have the knowledge to take on this, this terrible problem. Now, Paul has told us over and over that his view of resurrection is nothing but what was promised to Old Covenant Israel. And we just read that again there at the end in Acts 26, where he said over and over that he, he had preached nothing but what had been promised by the prophets. And the prophets all, with just a couple of little minor exceptions, were speaking to Old Covenant physical Israel. The promises of resurrection that Paul preached were promises that were made to old physical Israel. And again, churchgoers in America cannot relate that at all to who we are, what we are, where we're going, etc. But but we've been trying to point out a logical continuity because Israel was transformed in the days of Christ and the apostles and what we call the church today is really Israel in God's mind. And as we saw in the book of Acts, by halfway through, by Acts 13, physical Israel had clearly become the enemy of Yahweh God. And the, the battle lines just delineated the, the, the good from the bad more and more as, uh, as we go on through the book of Acts. So... Israel is transformed and changed from a physical dead kingdom into a vibrant, living, spiritual kingdom. Those who don't make that jump are left behind and are slated for destruction. In fact, that's the left behind that uh, our dispensational friends love to talk about, you know, in their, in their books and everything. They've just got the timing and the people that it was talking about completely confused. <laughs> the, the Judeans who were left behind and didn't make that jump into the spiritual kingdom were utterly and completely destroyed uh, there uh, when the Roman army came in in the first century and destroyed their nation. All right, so in Acts 24, in one of his trials, Paul said that he believed all things that were written in the Law and the Prophets and in Moses, and that there is about to be a resurrection from the dead. We talked about that. That word, Greek word, mellow, always, that's in that verse, always means imminency. It's about to happen. It's never used just to emphasize something that's going to happen hundreds of years later or thousands of years later. It's always talking about something that's going to happen very, very, very soon. So, the resurrection, in Paul's mind, was not something deferred thousands of years, but it was something that was about to take place there in their generation. And 
Well, and we'll we're going to study that in a little more detail as to why Paul would think that. I mean, Paul could have been a nutcase. I mean, after all, but we, we're going to go and see if there's any basis to what he is thinking. The first place that I would like to go here, and this may be the last one we have time to look at this evening, but uh, we go to Isaiah, the 24th chapter. This is an Old Testament prophet way before the uh, Babylonian captivity when they actually had the real Hebrew language. They call it Paleo-Hebrew now. And let's see, 25, verse 10. In chapter 25, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is pronouncing doom on Israel. And this is a common theme in, in the prophets. Um, oh, I'm, in, I'm sorry, I'm, I need to start in 24. Okay. In Isaiah 24, he's prophesying doom uh, on the land and on Israel. Uh, in verse 3 it says, The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word, Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns, the world is ruined and fades away. The arrogant people of the, of the land do languish. So here he's predicting a destruction of, of heaven and earth, so to speak. Um, it's not talking about the end of the universe, as many of us have been taught, but he's talking about the end of physical Israel. Verse 5, the land is defiled because of the inhabitants. They have violated the law. They have changed the ordinances and broken the everlasting covenant. We've talked a lot about that, how the Pharisees had created a man-made religion uh, and brought in Babylonian paganism and Kabbalism and added all of that to the law of Moses and so on. Therefore, a curse shall consume the land because the inhabitants have sinned, um, etc. So there, it's, it's a cry for uh, of mourning, of destruction. Skipping down to verse 19, the earth is utterly broken down, the earth is cleanly dissolved, the earth is completely perplexed. It reels like a drunkard, one oppressed with wine. The earth will be shaken as a storehouse, for sin has prevailed upon it, it shall fall, and it shall not be able to rise. God shall bring his hand upon the host of heaven and upon the kings of the land. So, in chapter 24, this is death, this is destruction, this is separation. But, the good news follows in chapter 25. He starts off saying, I will exalt you, my God, for all the wonderful things you've done. And he talks in verse 2 about the destruction uh, that we read about in chapter 24. But then if we skip down to verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts shall make a feast of fat things for all nations in this mountain, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, refined wine on the lees. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering which covers all people and the veil that is woven over all nations. Now you might be thinking, what, what is that he's talking about? Well, he tells us the answer in the next verse. He says, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken it. And one shall say in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, this is a specific prophecy, like Paul is talking about, that talks about doing away with death. And it's in the day of this feast. We call this the gospel feast here in uh, Isaiah 
25, uh, a feast for all nations. I mean, this is the gospel. This is what Paul has been doing, right? He's been, vi- he's been inviting all nations to come in to God's holy place, the Holy of Holies, actually, and spiritually feast with God to, to taste of the riches of Jesus Christ, to be joined to God as one, as a husband and wife uh, become one flesh. Uh, so this is the gospel that Paul has been preaching, and this is the resurrection that Paul has been preaching. Death is being done away with, yes. I have a question. Uh, I'm looking at a uh, 1908 Schofield Bible. This is an original, the first edition, 1908. Beautiful, still got nice leather on it. Looks very, uh, looks like the kind of thing you'd believe. And in this chapter that you just went through, 24th chapter of uh, Isaiah, uh, the, the footnotes added begin like this. Looking through the trouble to the kingdom age. That's in verse 20. That's a, uh, that's a Schofield note. Then between 12 and 13, after you talked about the total destruction of the city and the, and the land and all that, then there's a footnote added. It's not a footnote. It's just interstitial between the verses that says the Jewish remnant. And then it refers to the, to the, the, the next chapter, 13 on, refers to the, what is supposedly the Jewish remnant, taking up the chapter, verse 15, when it says there, the great tribulation, and it gives a cross-reference to Psalm 2 and to Revelation 7. And so the, this next uh, verse is supposedly about the great tribulation, and it says, From the uttermost parts of the earth we have heard the songs, the glory, the righteousness. But I said, My leanness, woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treachery. Yes, the treasonous dealers have dealt treacherously. This supposedly is referring to the Great Tribulation. And then further on down is a note added in italics, destruction of the Gentile world power. Uh, This is uh, not destruction of Israel, but destruction of the Gentile world power. And then the next verse down after 21, it says the first resurrection, the kingdom age begins. So that's what Cyrus I. Schofield did to this in 1908. And that's fascinating because 90% of that is, is uh, correct uh, with the qualification that it happened just like he described in the first century. But he doesn't think any of it has happened yet, uh, you know, when he was living in 1908. The Great Tribulation, the Jewish Remnant, all of those are good concepts. The one that he's dead wrong on is, of course, the... Uh, that the Gentiles are the ones being destroyed, and that's not true at all. It, it's the majority of physical Israel who will not make that jump to the spiritual kingdom, who will not be turned back to the faith of Abraham, but instead trust in the law as defined by the Pharisees, uh, which will take them to certain destruction. So, you know, there's a lot of truth mixed in the Schofield Notes. And it requires discernment, you know, to go through and, and weed the good from the bad. Well, I think all of this is being put out in the future. Yes. Certainly Great Tribulation hadn't come yet. He was talking about that after 1908. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and these other things obviously hadn't come either. Destruction of the Gentiles, the first, re- the first resurrection, the kingdom age begins. And see, the, the, the interesting part of that is... That, that is accurate with what Paul is saying in his trials, is that the resurrection and the kingdom are Yeah, but coming. Paul said it already started. Ex- well, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. As does Schofield the says Hebrews it's in the future, and every, after 1908. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's interesting that he does have it right that the resurrection, the, the resurrection is the same time that the kingdom comes. He understands that they come at the same time. And this is exactly what Paul's saying. It's just that Schofield and Paul have two totally different time frames in mind. Paul is saying there is about to be 
a resurrection of the dead. There, you know, there, this spiritual kingdom is being built. The courses of the spiritual temple are being laid right now. So, you know, it was in the works when Paul said it. The King James Bible did not use the this tense that describes ongoing present action and imminence and just and change the tense just randomly to future tense just to uh, match their preconceived ideas uh, when they translated the King James Bible. In fact, we're in contact with a Greek scholar in the Washington, D.C. area who has access to some of the earliest Greek manuscripts, and there's clear evidence through the centuries that people have just gone in and changed the tense of the verbs that talk about this all being done in the first century. And he, see, he sees a steady stream of edits to change the tense uh, of the verbs in the Greek manuscripts. And by the time the King James Bible is translated, they did it to nearly all of these, ver- these verbs that implied immediate ongoing action they were changed to future action. So the King James Bible was a big, big help to Schofield, and of course that is the translation that he chose mm-hmm. to uh, butcher with his notes there. Right. Thank you. Okay, yep. Well, we are definitely out of time tonight, but we're going to, we might make a few more comments about this, and then we're going to look at Jeremiah, and then we want to get on to Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. Uh, if we can, just to show the consistency of what Paul is saying in his trials and the implications for us today, for believers who are trying to refute dispensationalism. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, for that great study. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small think big, and press on towards the straight gate.